Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Dalipan Naren and Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to start on the first of a few episode arc on some of the comorbidities associated particularly with opioid use disorder. And in particular, for the episode today, we're going to be talking about some of the psychiatric comorbidities for people with opioid use disorders in particular, but also I guess you could generalise this to, to substance use disorders in general. So, Fergal, I guess an easy question off the bat. Why do people with mental illness use drugs? Well, I suppose, um, first of all, drugs are fun. But secondly, um, I think a lot of people, if not the majority of people who use drugs, use it as a, use drugs as a tool to escape from some form of psychological pain. So coping and self-medicating, I think, has got to be the, the, the most salient reason why drug use is so prevalent. And that, that alludes to the, the importance of relapse prevention work. Absolutely. And I should probably preface my earlier question, which should have been, why do some people with mental illness use drugs? Not everyone with mental illness will, will use drugs. But absolutely, uh, I think you mentioned coping and self-medicating um, and, and boredom sometimes um, and to feel good. And I guess there's also sometimes um, other factors as well, uh, which is sometimes to counter sexual dysfunction. We know that some of the medications that we use to treat depression, for example, SSRIs and SNRIs can cause some sexual dysfunction. So sometimes I've certainly seen some patients use some medications or some drugs to, to counter some of the side effects of, of their psychotropic medications as well. And I guess also we've got the common um, issues, I guess, with addiction and mental health disorders and the psychobiosocial model that we've discussed in, in previous episodes as well with, with regards to that. So yeah, there, may, there may also be a, a common neurobiological underpinning um, and this, I think, is everyone's talked about it in the past, but I think there's actually quite a lot of emerging evidence connecting uh, inflammation, chronic low-grade inflammation, otherwise known as meta-inflammation, connecting that between uh, mental health and substance use disorders. But yeah, there may be, and, and of course, there may be other biological reasons why, why people um, uh, have such a susceptibility. It's an interesting concept to explore because, you know, what are the pathways to comorbidity? You know, what, what, how do you actually end up having two diagnoses at the same time? Would you care to comment on that? So it's a, it's a fascinating area and it's one of those which is somewhat complicated and partially understood, but one could view this as mental illness and addiction as, as separate and but contemporaneous conditions. So say, for example... Um, your your substance use could be part of your mental health condition. So, for example, if you have obsessive compulsive disorder and compulsively want to smoke, that could there could be a link there. One could think of mental illness as being a, a risk factor for addiction. We do know that, say, people with high anxiety levels will try and do things to alleviate that anxiety, and that could make one more at risk of using sedative medications such as such as benzodiazepines as well. Um, mm. And also there's a, a, a potential for some addictions or dependences to be a risk factor for mental health 
illnesses or mental health conditions, such as, uh, I guess, the association between, say, say cannabis use and, and schizophrenia. And we also know that there are some substances which can cause transient mental illnesses uh, or, or changes in consciousness, such as methamphetamine causing drug-induced psychosis. So I guess those are briefly some of the, the pathways towards um, the comorbidity uh, that you were talking about, Virgil. Would you, would you agree with those statements? Yeah, yeah, I would. Um, and it just illustrates the point that there are, there are many, many ways that in which substance use and mental ill health can intertwine and, and it also, I suppose, speaks to the, the significant co-prevalence, um, which we'll get, we'll, we, we will get onto in, in later on in this subject. Absolutely. Now, I guess the, the commonest um, psychiatric disorders are, in general, the mood disorders. And when we're talking about, say, depression, for example, is there anything in depression that might predispose or put someone at risk of a substance use disorder, Fergal? Depression causes psychosocial dysfunction, and, and that also predisposes to an increased risk of relapse from opioid use disorder. Depression also causes uh, or is associated with high degrees of, of smoking. So, for instance, and again, this goes back to the meta-inflammation theory. You know, if you measure uh, patients with depression, they've got elevations in their highly selective CRP. And smoking also has elevations and highly causes elevations in their highly selective CRP. Um, the the other way that uh, mood disorders and depression can interact with uh, alcohol with substance disorder is with alcohol. So we know that chronic drug use causes a depressed mood, and we know that people use alcohol in some way to alleviate that depressed mood, certainly in the short term. But then, of course, in the long term, we also know that alcohol contributes to um, worsening depression. Absolutely. There are other drugs, of course, that can also cause a worsening, uh, worsening of mood. What, what about those, Philippe? So, absolutely. So, basically, a lot of drugs that can worsen mood can worsen moods due to the effects of the drug. So, say, for example, we know withdrawal from substances can, can cause depressed moods. So, Basically, withdrawing, withdrawing of stimulants or even withdrawing of sedative medications and going through that withdrawal cycle can certainly affect mood and worsen mood as well. Mm, yeah, and it can also yeah. worsen anxiety kind of going through, through withdrawal as well. So anxiety symptoms can also be a feature of both intoxication, but it can also be a feature of, of the withdrawal of substances as well. Yeah. I mean, going back to smoking, I, th I like to think of smoking as, or, or dependence on smoking, basically as a chronic dysphoria interspersed with episodic intoxication with nicotine. And so to me, that perfectly illustrates the correlationship between mood and, and substance use. Absolutely. Something I get asked a lot about, especially with substance use disorder, is, is psychosis. And there's a lot of concern about substances that can, that can cause psychosis uh, in, in our patients. Could you talk a bit more about, in particular, which drugs are, can place one at risk of psychosis and, and what the process involves when someone gets a drug-induced psychosis? Psychosis. 
So I suppose firstly, we need to define what drug-induced psychosis is. And so basically, you know, I am paraphrasing the DSM-5, but basically it's a new onset psychosis characterized by delusions or hallucinations in some form of contemporaneous association with a drug use that is capable of causing that psychosis to therefore causing impairment and dysfunction and distress, uh, whilst also excluding other causes of psychiatric illness. So basically it's new onset hallucinations, delusions because of a, because of exposure or withdrawal uh, associated with a drug that is capable of doing that or making that uh, presentation. So what drugs then, it then begs the question, what drugs do actually cause drug-induced psychosis? So we know that the, the, the prototypical drug is, uh, the, are the stimulants. So, you know, methamphetamine, uh, it is a prototypical cause of drug-induced psychosis. But also we know that cocaine can cause it. We know that cannabis can cause it. We know that club drugs can do it, can, can cause it. We know these synthetic cannabinoids that, that can cause it. And we also know that withdrawal from, uh, from hypnosedatives can cause a delirium that can look like a psychosis. But yeah, so it's, it's a recognized, it is a recognized psychiatric illness in conjunction with substance use. And that's, that's a kind of a layman's definition. Excellent. And that's, that's a pretty good marker around psychosis and drug-induced psychosis there, Fergal. Another question I think that's topical in the here and now is, is that of ADHD. Um, and ADHD and methamphetamine use uh, uh, are two kind of uh, <laughs> questions I get asked a, a lot about. Does having a diagnosis of ADHD potentially predispose someone to being at higher risk of developing a substance use disorder? And I guess something that we get asked a lot is, is this person who's using methamphetamine someone who has ADHD who's, who's trying to, to self-medicate? What are your answers to these uh, yeah. two quite oh, controversial right. topics, uh, Fergal? Right, it's, it's a it's a <laughs> it's a very complex subject. Right? Does does ADHD predispose you to substance use disorder? I think when you look at the impulsivity element associated with ADHD, you are more likely to be impulsive. Therefore, you're more likely to experiment. Therefore, you're more likely to use drugs. Therefore, you are more likely to be exposed to drugs. Therefore, yes, you're more likely to to become drug dependent than anyone without ADHD, but it's not an automatic uh, linear progression from having a diagnosis of ADHD to being um, to having a diagnosis of substance use disorder with say stimulant use disorder. It's not an automatic thing. The other question um, is we need to bear in mind that being on, being on treatment with stimulants for ADHD doesn't necessarily increase the risk of substance use disorder with stimulants. But as your, as your second question alluded to, you know, the, does, it, um, does having a diag or does stimulant use disorder actually reflect an undiagnosed ADHD and a, and a patient's desire to self-medicate for ADHD? Well, I would say this. For those people who do have ADHD and who do find themselves using illicit stimulants, well, then yes, it does. You know, they are self-medicating a, a disease. However, there, there, the, if you look at entirely a, a cohort of patients with stimulant use disorder, they don't all have ADHD. A minority of them will have ADHD. The rest of them will just use stimulants because they feel great. 
So how do you distinguish the difference between someone who's got a valid diagnosis of HD from someone who is using stimulants? I mean, we all know that stimulants improve function in, in someone who's got ADHD. It improves concentration in particular in someone who's got ADHD. But if you give anyone a stimulant, they will feel as if their function is improving and they will feel as if their concentration is improving, especially when we're talking about doing repetitive, monotonous, boring tasks. There is a reward for using sti stimulants. They do improve uh, task function on low cognitive, cognitive demand uh, activities. The problem is that if you keep using them, you end up with the side effects, the, the long-term sequelae, which include drug-induced psychosis, which includes um, you know, the, the vascular complications, the strokes, the heart attacks, things like that, and, it, 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 and also the psychosocial dysfunction. So there is a short-term payoff. So you cannot use the, uh, the idea, oh, I feel better and I work harder when I take stimulants, therefore I must have ADHD, therefore I am self-medicating an undiagnosed ADHD. And that's how I justify my stimulant use. You cannot use that as a way of diagnosing ADHD. The way to diagnose adult ADHD is to look for the key features of ADHD. So, so, so what is ADHD? It is a neurodevelopmental disorder that starts in childhood. So you need to have a good history of childhood onset, pervasive, multi-domain psychosocial dysfunction. Absolutely. And really, unless you have that, you cannot say to someone, You've got ADHD as an adult that wasn't, and therefore you need stimulants. The other thing to say is that the stimulants that people use when they've got stimulant use disorder are very, very quick acting. So methamphetamine's got a very rapid onset of action. The stimulants that are used for the management of ADHD have a very slow onset of action, and that's deliberately so. So we know that the speed of onset of action for stimulants will determine whether or not it becomes misused. Absolutely. Something that often goes along with substance use disorders or something that we, we notice uh, a lot of is sometimes comorbid personality disorders, in particular borderline personality disorder and potentially antisocial personality disorder, which are two of the, uh, the more common personality disorder types that, that do seem to have yeah. a, a preponderance with substance use disorder. Does the substance use disorder worsen the prognosis of those personality disorders by and of themselves? Absolutely. In particular with borderline personality disorder, the prognosis for dual diagnosis, if you've got a borderline personality disorder and a substance use disorder, the prognosis is worse than having cancer. You know, and just think as a, on a societal level, think about think how many billions of dollars are put into cancer research and supporting people with cancer. Well, actually, there's another diagnosis. There's another group of people who have got a worse prognosis. But unfortunately, this group of individuals are stigmatized and ostracized by society. Those with borderline personality disorder and substance use disorder. So I'm not quite so sure about the figures for antisocial personality disorder, but I'm assuming they're roughly the same cohort. But yeah, the, the, the dual diagnosis and personality disorders is so damaging. Absolutely. Something that those of us who, who work with people with substance use disorder have noticed or do notice amongst our patients is the significant trauma and harms that have, that have occurred to a lot of our patients, often during childhood, 
but sometimes throughout the gamut of, of life. And sometimes there's trauma, then re-trauma, re-triggering. And it seems like a yeah. large amount of patients that I've seen would definitely meet the criteria or the DSM-5 criteria for PTSD. Have you noticed this amongst mm. the patients that you treat as well, Fergal? Yeah, definitely. Again, it goes back to why do we use drugs? You know, the, what's the first reason that we said we people use drugs is to escape pain. You know, so PTSD is a form of psychic pain. Um, and and there is well document there is a well documented association between PTSD and the use of drugs. And so, for instance, you know, you know, there's evidence from the Iran Iraq the Iraq War. Sorry, where one in five U.S. veterans from the Iraq Wars were diagnosed who had a diagnosis of PTSD, also had a co-occurring substance use disorder. The, the, the other thing is one of the, not that we look after, not that I look after, you know, veterans from the American or the Australian involvement in Iraq, but I do look after a lot of women who have been the victims of assaults, rape, child abuse um, on, the, on the part of men. So women who have been victims, victimized women, are a, a significant group of individuals who are at risk of developing PTSD and therefore um, substance use disorder. And this leads me on to the point that actually the, 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 one, of the, the, one of the core features of PTSD is the fact that there needs to be an exposure to a, to a trauma, a life th potentially life-threatening trauma. Now, the incidence of onset of PTSD is lower it's, it's less than 10% if you're exposed to a natural disaster, whereas it's higher, i.e. more than 50% of patients uh, who are exposed to a man-made trauma will then go on to develop it. So these, these traumas that I've just described, abuse, rape, sexual assault, these are all traumas that are perpetrated by one human being on another human being, and they are much more associated with the onset of PTSD and I think also much more associated with the onset of substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. So it's just an interesting point to consider what was the trauma. Because I, in, in my clinical practice, I don't see that many people who are traumatized as a result of bushfires or natural disasters who then have comorbid substance use disorder. I don't see those people. All I see are people who are wounded by other human beings. That's a very fair point, Fergal. And you've mentioned dual diagnosis um, a couple of times in, in this episode. And dual diagnosis is when you have a co-occurring mental health diagnosis and, and a substance use disorder. And we know that in general, people with mental illness experience more complications from their drug use than the general population. Does a dual diagnosis complicate the prognosis and treatment of each diagnosis? Absolutely. So, which is... In the case of dual diagnosis, it's really important to get dual treatment because dual treatment does improve outcome. But unfortunately, the prognosis is actually lower than for anyone with a single diagnosis because the two diagnoses interfere with each other's treatment. So one of the, one of the biggest or the, the most easiest examples of this is that if you've got a mental health disorder and you've got a substance use disorder, you're less likely to actually attend your appointments because, you're, because your life is so chaotic. So actually, a, a lack of attendance of to medical appointments can actually be a sign of worsening illness, certainly in the substance use disorder. Uh, so engagement is key, and we've we've spoken in other episodes about just how important engagement is. You know, it is the sine qua non of a successful treatment outcome, and it, and really, it behoves us all 
to ask ourselves, what can we do to improve engagement? Engage, 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 engage. Absolutely. Absolutely. And coming back to, say, some of the treatments or medications that one might use in, in, in the dual diagnosis space, are there some interactions or concerns that we need to be aware of about particular medication types or medications that we need to be cautious around when, when dealing with patients with dual diagnoses? Yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it boils down to um, one of the biggest issues being the risk of overdose, respiratory sedation and overdose and death. I mean, we're talking primarily about patients with uh, opioid use disorder, but really anyone who is, has got, who's on more than one hypnosedative and potentially anyone who's got also a chronic disease that reduces the respiratory threshold is at risk of having a, 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 a respiratory event and an overdose and potentially death. So think about it. You know, how many drugs do we use uh, to treat mental health? You know, the key, key main players are the benzodiazepines and the antipsychotics. We know that use of benzodiazepines and antipsychotics doubles your potential risk of death if you've got a substance use disorder. And then you put on top of that the fact that you're we're treating patients with substance use disorder with drugs like methadone. Well, that you know, so then we have a combination of someone who's on antipsychotics, benzodiazepines, and methadone. You know, it all it all starts to mount up what I call the hypnosedative load. And the higher the load, the closer to the cliff face you're driving, and you know, you just don't know where it's going to end. You don't know when you're going to drive over the edge. Another another kind of issue is you know, the potential for interaction. So, you know, if we're using tricyclic antidepressants to treat pain, for instance, I mean, that can affect, you know, that has downstream side effects affecting the cardiovascular system and you know, also potentially the risk of sedation. So again, you know, if you've got someone with a precarious heart and you put them on tricyclics and you have a stimulant use disorder, you know, which causes, uh, you know, cardiomyopathy, again, you've got a recipe for, unfortunately, death. So it's so important to understand why you're prescribing a medication, what are the potential interactions with that medication, and really how do you manage the risk to the patient? Because, yes, we all, you know, no, I, I mean, I was going to say no doctor. The vast majority of doctors do not want to kill their patients. Right. But a lot of patients die as a result of drug interactions. So, you know, what's going on in that space? It's basically is our desire to care for the patient is it that outweighed by our understanding and concern for the potential interactions? Who knows? But it is my opinion that it's better to have a live patient who's still in pain and suffering than a dead patient. Of course, that is true. And of course, psychiatric comorbidity is a massive topic. Today, we've talked about mood disorders, anxiety, psychosis, ADHD, medication interactions, personality disorders, and trauma, and how all of this in combination with dual diagnosis can significantly impact our patient's quality of life, their treatment course and their management course through their treatment for substance use disorder and how all of these interlay upon each other. It's a complex latticework and it requires due care and rational prescribing and ongoing empathy and support for the patient. It's been a long episode of Cracking Addiction. Thank you for your time and Bye for now.